Okay, ready? Think what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in we are. I want to know something she needs. I'll think about everyone you need. I'm holding it. Things are moving real now. I have a senior warning you. Hey. The tour ratio. Okay, though. The Toretto. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. You're a phenomenal person. I mean, you legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. What film do you think launches the modern period? I mean, in so many ways, I want to think that it's love and basketball. That's a film that shows a woman can direct action you know uh and and she does directing sports sequences is hard anyway those sequences with the basketball playing are clear we know who's advancing the ball there's tension there's drama and all that and it takes her really almost 20 years to get to direct an action film um so that's that's the cause and effect of it Elvis Mitchell has long been one of the greatest and most important film critics around. I am excited to see my man moving up to becoming a director. He made a movie for Netflix, a documentary called Is That Black Enough For You? And it's on Netflix and it is awesome. And it is a look at black film history, really focusing around the 70s, but talking about the things that led up to the 70s, that flowed out of the 70s, not just black exploitation, but that whole era that was a new moment in black film history. I'm excited to talk to my man Elvis Mitchell on Touré Show. I just watched the film and I really, really liked it. And I thought um, there's an amazing group of, of talking heads in the picture. And, and you expand the lens of what I thought of as black exploitation far beyond that. Because I always thought fairly narrow 70s pictures. But you, 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 you see it much in a much wider lens. I think I'm seeing it's just all a black film just because it's, if we're looking at that period, which is, I think, this instrumental and seminal period, not just in black film, but in film in general, and to say that it not only includes those black exploitation films, but also films such as Killer of Sheep and Symbiopsychotaxiplasm, and all these films that really kind of exploded what the definition of film was and made pop culture expand by virtue of these, their existence. I mean, absolutely, because it's like the conversations we've had before about how big black culture is and how so often so much of it doesn't get its due. To me, this could be a talk that you and I have had before with this movie encompasses. So you, I mean, like, cause you talk about the whiz, I mean, you're in this film, you're not really focusing on black exploitation films. You're focusing on black film as broadly as possibly defined. Absolutely. Yeah. Just because it seems to me so often, but one of the things, the reasons I want to do this it's just that when you get those compendium of film clips of some of the greatest scenes of all time, generally when they go to a black film, it's Sidney Poitier looking into the camera saying they call me Mr. Tibbs. And that's supposed <laughs> to be the entirety of black film. You know, there's nothing else before or after that. 
And I want to make the case that not only is there stuff before and after that, but there are clips that should be included in these roundups of the greatest scenes of all time. That beautiful sunrise that Gordon Parks has in The Learning Tree, which is his way of claiming the Western for people of color. They say, yes, black people can ride horses and they can ride horses and ride away from you. And Billy D. Williams, you know, when you see his manicured hand gleaning as he leans into the frame, they say, you wait for my arm to fall off, which when I told women of a certain age, it didn't matter what their race was, they'd say, you got Billy D. Williams saying that? As soon as I said Billy D. Williams, they knew they wanted to hear that. To me, that is an iconic moment in film. And there are so many iconic moments in film that include people of color and not just in that era. One of my favorite things in the movie is the section on, on black silent film. And not only is there Oscar Michaud, but there is Spencer Williams, who, if anybody knows Spencer Williams, they know him for playing Kingfish on the Amos and Andy TV show. And there's this beautiful shot in this movie the, from the very beginning of The Blood of Jesus, where this procession of, of black parishioners are being led by this pastor towards the camera. That is just breathtaking. And I just thought, why has this never been in one of those, those clip reels of the, some of the greatest moments in black and white film, for example? So for me, just to make it about certainly that era, but also to, to look at the films that came before that and to show that they had an impact, too. So, wait, let's just talk about black exploitation for a second, because that's sure. what a lot of people think about. And you're, you are hovering around the 70s, building up to the 70s and talking about. Do you think that black exploitation films in general hold up well? I mean, I, I, I can watch The Mac and Shaft and Superfly, those three right now and have a great time. Um, but but the, the the genre filmmaking has moved on quite far from those films. They are, they do look a little dated. Well, you certainly you can say a lot of films look a little bit dated. You can say Dog Day Afternoon looks a little bit dated. They're still using yeah. landlines. I mean, so yeah. there there are moments that I think you take film from its era. That you can say that they don't really move well. But you look at stuff like something like the Mac. You know, basically all those fashions are stuff you see on the line from Gucci right now. Sure. You know, so you can certainly say that that's lived on. And, and, and been you know, absorbed into mainstream culture. And that's just one of the things I'm talking about. But also, in performance terms, what the Mac does, those great performances, not just by Richard Pryor and, 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 and Max Julian, but Dick Anthony Williams as Pretty Tony. That's a great performance. I got a chance yes. to ask him about that. He said, you know, listen, I want to make this a real guy. And this is somebody, to me, I thought of him as being like connected in the same way to, to Edward G. Robinson and James Cagney. I want him to make that same kind of impact, but to use black street common sense in the way he talks. So he would seem like a real person that we hadn't seen in movies before. But also, I mean, the, the Mac is a morality tale, you know? Goldie yeah. starts a movie coming into town on a bus, and he leaves the movie going out of town on a bus. He leaves this tail between his legs. And so I think it makes it bigger than that. It's certainly a film noir, I think, certainly in the literal sense, but also in the way that it deals with that sort of demimonde. And, and, just recently, I was in Memphis for the Indie Memphis Film Festival with the film, and I asked they bring Willie Hall, who was one of, who was the drummer when he was 19, 17, I think, when he started, with the Barquets. And that opening of Shaft, where he's hammering those 16ths on, on, on the hi-hat, but also the backbeat is, it hits every time Richard Rowtree takes a step. And I asked him about that. He goes, oh, my God, yes. He said, Isaac Hayes bought me a metronome that he put in my bedroom. So every night I fall asleep to the click of that, that metronome. So when we started playing that song, I, I did not even have to look up the screen. I knew how to make those, those hits go so that they, they matched up with what he was doing. And, and that film, I just did a Q&A with a Tarantino at Town Hall a couple of days ago. 
And when I first met him, we got into this big argument about Shaft. And he said, you can make a better movie. And he said, you know, I've had a chance to, to re-examine Shaft. And it's part of the same sort of genre film as, as Bullet, where it's as much about that guy and the way he inhabits that world as the film itself. So, yeah, I think that certainly when you talk about black exploitation, as often as not, people sort of think they roll their eyes and go, oh, you mean those campy films with all those overwrought costumes and the bad acting, the bad action sequences? And, well, no. I mean, those aren't campy performances. You can't say that Max Julie is not in the Mac. You certainly can't say anything bad about Moses Gunn and Shaft or, or, or any of the films we were talking about or, or Ron O'Neill. And the example I want to use for Superfly because this movie I'd actually only ever seen a, a couple of times, but I remember as a kid seeing that run and we had got in the, in the documentary where he's running down the street, that, that chase sequence, the, the junkie chase sequence for those who've only heard the record and not seen the movie. We chase this junkie and run only a vault over a five foot tall fence in heels in a suede leisure suit, leaps up onto the fire escape, pulls himself up. And like I said, if you look at the film, you can see his hands shaking from the adrenaline. So it's him and not a stunt person. That's all one sequence shot with the actor and not stunt people. That's astonishing stuff. And the, the movie is filled with that kind of, you know, inventive guerrilla filmmaking. Uh, one of the scenes I've always liked about in Superfly is the scene at the end where Priest is driving around town, sort of picking up his ends and about to, to bounce from, from, into his, his about to bounce into what becomes Superfly TNT, I guess. And then he um, he double parks to go into a restaurant to pick up some money for somebody. And the camera stays on the outside of the restaurant. It's, it's an exterior shot. And this, his car is double parked. And I asked Jim Signorelli, who's a, the DP, I said, you guys didn't have permits. He goes, oh, of course we didn't have permits. Why do you think <laughs> that car is sitting double parked? It's, he said, because in the movie, you know, it doesn't matter what part of Manhattan you're in. Somebody will drive up and park right in front of the building. Sure. That's what a friend of mine calls Doris Day parking. There's always parking for the movie star. There's never any parking for Superfly. You think that actually, in sort of subtextual terms, makes the movie feel real to you. If you spend any time in New York, you know you can spend an hour driving around a block, just getting around a block, forget finding a parking space. So that all that texture that these movies have, I think, elevate them into something more. Let's talk a little bit about how black exploitation films. It was a whole huge cultural movement. How did they change black people of that time? Because you you talk about we were kind of starved for for influ for for representation before. We got some, you know, and Sidney Poitier and Harry Belfonte and Dorothy Dandridge are gorgeous portrayals. But they were they were they were they were too few for the time. And even the people then, my mom would have been like, you know, we had great stuff, but it was too little. So then all this black exploitation stuff comes out and it, 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 there's tons of them. How did those films change black people? Well, gosh, I mean, you think about one of the things I say in, in the movie is that, you know, up until probably the late sixties, if you saw a black person and a white person in the movie, that was adult entertainment. It wasn't porn. You just saw a black man and a white woman talking. That was adult entertainment because they might talk about something or touch each other. So, and Sidney existed in these movies by himself. And what I also wanted to do in the film, too, is just show that rather than do those kinds of things that he found demeaning, Harry Belafonte didn't make a movie from 1959 until 1970. He turned down the chance to star in, in, in Little Wizard of the Field because he just thought it didn't work for him. And this is somebody who trained as an actor. If you listen to those songs, those songs are basically really monologues. He performs them in character, so to speak. So what these movies did was show a world where black people had agency. 
And I was talking about and showed that scene from The Lonely Tree for a reason, because if you saw Western and a number of people in the movie, Sam Jackson, Suzanne DePass, Margaret mm-hmm. Avery, talk about wanting to see a black cowboy. And the fact is that, you know, we were responsible for that kind of thing as anybody else, as, as a people. But you never saw black people on horses because in the movie, what does being on, a, on horseback sort of denote? that you have some agency. You can go mm-hmm. where you want to, when you want to go there. And mm-hmm. so as a result, you never saw black people on horses because they didn't want them to have that kind of power on screen. So mm-hmm. just what Gordon Parks, again, does at the opening of, of the learning tree lets us know that he's telling us that black people can have some power over their lives. And to see those movies of that period, or see Sidney Poitier surrounded by other black people, as you do in Uptown Saturday Night, you go, oh, that's what was missing. That's interesting. And also see him turn his image on his head. He's playing a guy wearing a suit and the suit seems to be strangling him. It seems to be cutting off the air to his pores. You've never seen Sidney Poitier in a suit not look as comfortable as Cary Grant. In fact, when you see something like In the Heat of the Night, you're thinking, how many suits is he able to pack into that one suitcase? He's got a costume change every time the sun comes up. So these movies offer the reality of black people being surrounded by other black people. And one of the examples I've always used is growing up and seeing the old classic movies, you'd see a married couple with twin beds. And I always just thought, wow, white people were crazy. Because you never, <laughs> you never saw black people. And that, certainly my parents didn't have twin beds. That's why there were nine of us. But you go, well, how is it possible that this kind of thing existed? And it becomes this sort of thing where you just impute what's not there. You're like the joke everybody made about horror films is that Black people were never in them because we always left before you know it got bad. And Wait, you're even, one of you're one of nine. I'm the middle of nine. You're number have, four or five. I'm number five. I have a Only twin sister twin? and a set uh-huh. of younger twin sisters. So yeah, that's me. So your mother had two twins. So that's six births. Six births that she had. Seven. Seven over yeah, seven how? times to the hospital, but, but nine births. Yeah, yeah, yep. So yep there's a bunch of us. What's the distance between your oldest sibling and your youngest? Uh, golly, about 20 years. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. That is amazing. Wow. Mm-hmm. wow. That's amazing. Um, you, 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 let me, let me, let me go here for a second, a little bit off the menu. Cause you talk about Tarantino is one of my favorite filmmakers, but there's a conversation to be had about what is black film and, you know, it's much, it's complicated in music, but I think easier in music than in film, right? I think film is a director's medium, but I think a lot of people look at who's in front of the camera. So now I'm like, that's not necessarily enough. I want to know there's a black person behind the camera to fully stamp it as a black film. Now, Django Unchained, he says, I want to make my slavery picture, my Western picture, whatever, uh, my Southern, a lot of people look at that and was like, well, they were mad about the N-word, but let's put that aside for a second. They're like, there's lots of black people who are telling a slavery type story. Like, it, I'm like, but it's a white director. So it, 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 does that, like, does it not matter? Or like, what, what? how do we define that? Wow. I mean, we're getting into William Styron territory here. Aren't we? <laughs> but I, I think that um, <laughs> so often in these black films in this era, the actors are kind of authors, you know, you can sort of see again, what Dick Anthony Williams was saying about pretty Tony in the Mac. Now that's certainly a film by a white director, but these actors are using their storytelling skills 
to make these characters real in the way that the directors hadn't imagined. And you can feel this, this sense of the directors in some sense getting out of the way. You can see what Pam Greer is doing in Coffee, the way she's informing that in emotional terms. It makes it bigger than I think. And the director was smart to say she knows what she's doing better than me trying to tell her how to lead the black experience. But, you know, there's the other side of that, too, where <clears throat> I just interviewed Robert Townsend because it's the 35th anniversary of Hollywood Shuffle, which is a movie responding to a way a lot of people of color retreated. He would tell the story about a British director trying to give him black dialect to speak. And no, no, no. It's it's my brother, my onlyest brother. You killed it him. And and so in cases like that where you your your authority, your creative authority is usurped by somebody who's trying to tell you how to tell this story. In so many of these cases, the actors, I mean, you can't really tell Jim Brown how to be Jim Brown. If you're a smart director, you don't try to do that. And so you you feel what these guys are doing. It's like Larry Cohen telling me about making Black Caesar and wanting to do it because he saw Sammy Davis Jr. on The Tonight Show and saw Sammy doing it with G. Robinson, saw Sammy doing his gunplay and thought, why not do a remake of Little Caesar with Sammy Davis Jr. in the Edward G. Robinson part? But it fell apart because Sammy had one of his periodic bankruptcies. He goes to American International uh, to try to make the movie, and the head of the studio goes, oh, well, I guess you work with those people before, so they're okay, right? And Larry goes, I made a movie of one black person. They're like anybody else. What are you talking about? And then the, the, the studio head says, well, I owe Fred Williamson a picture. And Larry Cohen goes, Sammy Davis Jr., Fred Williamson. And um, the head your head goes, give him a limp. But right, right, then right. he recognizes, too, that, that Fred knows how to tell the story. He told me the story that I wish I'd been able to get into the movie about giving, he said, listen, Fred, when I make these movies, they're low budget. We can't afford a costume designer. Take my credit card and go buy your wardrobe. You know how this guy's going to dress. So Fred comes back. He's got like six suits and five sports coats and a couple suede jackets and eight pairs of shoes. And Larry just kind of swallows hard and goes, um, well, how much did all this cost? And Fred goes, $400. He goes, you bought all this stuff for $400. And Fred goes, Larry on me, everything looks good. So that's the actor taking hold of the character, dressing the character literally. But there's all sorts of ways you're saying that a great imaginative black actor can take control of a film if he or she is the lead um, and they have the talent and make it a black film, even though the director is white. Well, I think, yeah, if you, if the director is smart enough to know you can do this better than me, I'm casting you because you can tell the story. If you're casting Jim Brown or Fred Williamson, you're not casting them to play, you know, Napoleon. You're asking them to step in and, and live a life that makes sense for the character on camera and 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 so I do think there became a kind of a de, a de facto authorship in the case of a lot of these films, where you're watching these actors do what they do and and rise and fall. And again, if, the, the case with Dick Anthony Williams, who goes from playing Pretty Tony to being the cop at the end of Dog Day Afternoon, if you remember that, and you can see the difference in performance there, terms there of what he got to do and how much he was allowed to do and how much he was uh, he was able to to really take ownership of the character. And you can see this happening in so many of these films. So I think even if there may not be black creative camera uh, talent behind the camera, the black talent steps up and fills in those holes that were left empty before they were cast. 
We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Of the films that you're talking about in, in your film, what are some of your absolute favorites? If I said I'm coming over and we're going to watch two or three of your favorite movies of these, what would you put on? I mean, so many of them are in the movie. I mean, I, I think it's interesting to look at Superfly and talk about it in subtextual terms. And the DP talks about using the guerrilla filmmaking styles of the Maisels brothers and D.A. Pennebaker to shoot it. So it felt like it was had more of a verite style. A lot of Superfly is done with handheld cameras, which is an unusual thing for a, a studio film. So there is, I think, something more than, than meets the eye in that case. But there's also a film that is actually one of my favorites, The Spook Who Sat By The Door. Mm-hmm. And the story of the making of that film could, make, could be its own movie. It's Ivan Dixon, who was an understudy to Sidney Poitier and Raisin in the Sun and told a story that you know, he and Lou Gossett just said, you know, we just hoped and we did hope this would come true that Sidney would just get hit by a bus one day because he would show up and act with a temperature of 102. So he couldn't be too sick to be in the movie. So, and then we hoped that when Sidney was doing these movies, he would turn one down and we would get it. And then we realized that if Sidney said, no, they just weren't going to make the movie. So Ivan is basically making himself nauseous being a co-star in Hogan's heroes. And he would go to Al Ruddy producer, of the Godfather who co-created Hogan's heroes 
go to his house every week to see movie screen there and sat in the back row with the editor of Hogan's Heroes and said, I'm going to direct a movie one day. There's this book I want to do. This book was sat by the door. And the editor said, well, when you make your movie, you let me know. I'll cut them for you. That guy was Michael Kahn, who's gone on to cut all of Steven Spielberg's movies. He got his start with Ivan Dixon cutting Trouble Man and The Spook Who Sat By The Door. And I just think if you look at those two movies back to back, Trouble Man and The Spook Who Sat By The Door, you can see the evolution of storytelling and how much he trusts actors. And, and it's that story itself, they, yeah. Ivan said that because they shot a lot of it in Chicago in the, in the early 70s, it was illegal to shoot in Chicago because Mayor Daley, after that 68 convention, didn't want any more cameras shooting the streets of Chicago that he couldn't control. So they stole all this footage and got this incredible score by Herbie Hancock, which was never released as a score because they couldn't afford to pay Herbie Hancock the $10,000 it would take to pay to make a record out of it. And he raised this money and he said, we play a little bit of a shell game. We showed United Artists all the action sequences. And they went, oh, my God, yeah, this will be huge. And they bought the movie and he finishes. And he goes, and they go, wait a second. This isn't a black action movie. This is a revolutionary movie. And he yeah. said, after the movie fin- finished this 18-month run, United Artists gave him the negative back. They went, you hear, you can have this. We don't want it anymore. Just take this thing. I mean, they were so terrified of what that movie was doing that they gave it back to the director. No questions asked because they just didn't want it around anymore. So that's why there was that version of the spook that came out about almost 20 years ago that Tim Reed put out on his on his home video label just because the studio didn't own it anymore. It was Ivan's film. Ivan gave him the rights to do so. So that's that's one of the movies I would show. But I would also show Claudine because it's got this great story. You know, Robert Townsend talks about how Diana Sands had built this thing for herself to star in. They gave herself a chance to really live up to the potential that she knew that she had. And she came down with cancer before they started shooting. And she tried to wait as long as she could. When she realized she probably wouldn't survive, she passed it off to her one of her best friends, Diane Carroll, who she knew was also waiting for a chance to prove herself as an actor and said, you do this. Not only is it a movie full of great performances, it's also got getting back to music. One of those five Curtis Mayfield scores. And again, Curtis Mayfield, five scores between 1968 and 1970. As far as I'm concerned, I stack them up against John Williams. Those scores sure. are Claudine, sure. Let's Do It Again, Sparkle, Superfly, and Short Eyes. And all those songs are written from the point of view of the character. So Claudine's got all the stuff going for it, too. So there's just a handful of movies I, I would mention. But also Lady Sings the Blues, which I think... Beautiful. Billy Dee Williams, and you see him in the documentary talking about being giddy or being shot like a movie star. Because he said, and this is one of the things I think people really empathize with, as a little brown boy going to the cinema, I never imagined anything like this would ever happen to me. When watching your documentary, two films jumped out at me that I haven't seen uh, that I'm like, I really have to see that. Um, Putney Swope, which I've heard about for decades, just never sat down and watched it. You, The way you talk about it made me feel like, wow, I got to I gotta get off my chair and actually go watch that because that shit looks incredible. Um, and ripe for a remaking, perhaps, um, but also uh, one that I don't I don't think I'd really heard of before, Coonskin, which feels like this epic animated pre-Rick and Morty Adventure Time black exploitation wild thing. 
oh my god, well, Coonskin is this Ralph Bakshi take on, on black culture because he grew up in Brooklyn or you know in a black neighborhood, and he, like many other people, was always kind of astounded at the black people you didn't see in the movies, and it was his take on a kind of a animation and cartoon take on black culture, not just the way blacks were depicted in films such as Song of the South, but also he looked at, you know, what was done in Crazy Cat and George Harriman, who, as we found out later, was a black man who presented himself as a white person. So there's a lot of the black experience that's in that comic strip that end up inspiring people like E.E. E. Cummings. So you think about the sort of the jazz feel that, that Harriman brought to a comic strip and how it, it, it sort of helped or really influence so many people in terms of a surrealist take on the world. And I think what Bakshi was doing with Coonskin was bringing that idea of surrealism and absurdism as, as juxtaposed with the way people of color were portrayed in animation and, and bringing that to the screen. It was a hugely controversial movie when it was released and got protests in the way that a lot of these movies were protested by people who wouldn't see them just to hear about the subject matter right. and preemptively judge them, you know? Right. right. Um, the other one that jumped out at me that I had never heard of, and I'm not, I'm, I'm going to ask you to say the title because I don't remember how to pronounce it. Uh, what was it? The psycho. Symbio psycho taxiplasm. Say it again. Symbio psycho taxiplasm. I mean, this seems to have, created entirely new ground in the cinematic landscape. Like, tell us about that one. I think it, you're absolutely right, Toray. It, it basically is inventing language. And I can't see that movie and not think about the example or the example it must have set for people like Sasha Baron Cohen. Mm. Um, you're, being, you're offering a real-world sort of character to people who don't know they're in the real world. And it's fascinating, too, because it's also playing with cinema and the way movies are presented, the way people of color are presented in the movies, also asking questions of race from its performers who don't, who aren't being told that the director is making this movie with this cast of people, but actually sort of sabotaging it to see how these actors will respond to that that kind of provocation. Okay. Um, it's a, it, I think, a towering piece of filmmaking, and 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 something different on the landscape. And it's one of these movies that, when you asked me to describe it, I thought, well. Okay, it's a mouthful. It's a much a mouthful as the title. In fact, there's a clip of Bill Greaves talking about it. In the late 60s, I think he was still calling it Take One because he wasn't really dealing with how remarkable and what a landmark this thing was and what a reinvention of cinema it was. And it, it does all those things. And I think a really entertaining fashion that makes us aware of his command of the medium because he started off as an actor and you see him in the movie from he's in from the 1940s. We just going to speeding through the dialogue and, and, and dealing with the fact that as a person of color, you're even in, in the forties, not especially in the forties, you're constantly forced to explain yourself in context because it was such a rarity to see black people in movies. A lot of those movies did that. You and so them. rather than explain anything, yeah. he made a point in symbio to not explain a single thing to the actors. So they're experiencing it in the same way that we are. And it's a remarkable thing. And it was one of these movies I had heard about for years back in the days, you know, in the before days, before the internet. And um, I ended up being weirdly on a plane sitting next to Steve Buscemi talking about it. He goes, oh, I know Bill Greaves. You want to see it? I went, yeah. So Steve ends up being in L.A. and he brings Bill Greaves to my house where I grill some barbecue. We watch the movie and he's talking to me about it. 
I mean, that's the kind of thing I wish I'd been able to get into the movie that I was not. But it's and then and and he it's it's, all, it's on two VHS tapes because that's how big it is. Right. So we watch it and then we let to reload and we're eating and talking about it. What are the? I things- mean, that's if there's one thing I was trying to get across in the movie, this sort of sense of discovery of the new land that these movies were constantly offering. Okay. Because the movies weren't getting the kind of coverage that they would get nowadays. They were being treated as these things that you would see. If there was an article on black villains, they'd be uh, this, these black exploitation roundups, and they'd be dismissed as, oh, just more of these sort of action films. And they're there to show these short-sighted and, 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 and sort of monocular takes on black culture, where, in fact, they were not that. Again, going back to what the Mac was, or even Willie Dynamite. Which is again, you know, Willie Dynamite leaves that movie defeated. He doesn't win. I mean, these. And, 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 go ahead. I'm sorry. You talk about how The Wiz got bad reviews, which I'm like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. The Wiz is fantastic. Okay. Got bad reviews. Is that you reviewing it? It is not. When no. The Wiz came out, it got really bad reviews, as you might expect for a big musical with a bunch of black people directed by a guy who brought you Serpico. You kind of go, wait, whose idea was this? Who was too busy to do this movie? And in fact, John Badham, who directed Saturday Night Fever, had been fired from The Wiz. And so people uh, find the director, so they brought in somebody who they thought knew New York. So let's get um, Lena Horne's son-in-law to direct the movie. That mm. should be okay, right? He, mm. Oh, he did Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, okay. Let's see how that works. And what I say in the movie is the fact that it got bad reviews, but a lot of films got bad reviews that were hits. And yeah. The Wiz been a hit i think the bad reviews would have been overlooked but the fact that it got bad reviews and it was an enormous box office failure gave the studios to kind of go oh this stuff makes us uncomfortable in the first place let's just not deal with it and then the others go ahead so yeah the whiz is where you mark the end of the because you 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 say really the 70s is this fruitful period not just black exploitation but through to the from what from sweet sweet back to the whiz is this fruitful period where lots of films are getting made the whiz does not do well that's because i was wondering why did the black exploitation era end but you really mark it like the whiz is the end of an era in a lot of big ways it was yeah we say that sort of important period in black film for me is 1968 with Night of the Living Dead, which posits a black hero in a way that had never been posited before. You know, he's the hero, giving was in effect a much better version of a Charlton Heston performance and is killed off in the end. And his race is never mentioned in the movie. I mean, that's the amazing thing still if you watch that movie. If it had been done in color, uh, it might people might still be talking about it in some ways because it is kind of astonishing that these interesting tensions that exist, especially in the time, seeing this black guy who's the hero. And as you're watching it, probably back then, because my, my sister's boyfriends were all saying this, you're watching it going, you're waiting for a black guy to get killed off. Because, you know, he's saving everybody. He's quick-tempered. He's trying to keep everybody from going insane. He's holding on. It's almost, in his weird way, Brechtian. He, he's, he's keeping everybody together in the midst of all this chaos, you're waiting for somebody to say something about his race. It's never said that he's picked off at the end of the movie as if he were the, one of the rioters from the Newark riots or the L.A. riots or the Detroit riots or the many riots that happened in the 1960s. That's the start of, of this era for me. And then there's like one sort of detonation after another of these of the, these successes that 
go on to show continually that there is an appetite for heroism in the movies. Because the point I make is that American movies are built on this weird myth of heroism. And, and the mainstream movie stars weren't playing heroes anymore. Warren Beatty or Jack Nicholson or Al Pacino or Gene Hackman are playing these guys who are sufferers, who really can't own the world. But these black actors are the heroes in these movies and present something that people want to see. And they become big successes. By 1968, that, that period, which certainly includes black quotation, has sort of petered out. And with any cycle, you expect the next iteration, right? Black actors are shown they can star in movies and audiences will come out of all colors because, as Ron O'Neill says, Superfly played Boston for 20 weeks. We ran out of black people in three weeks in Boston. So it wasn't just black people who were coming to see the movie. And then The Wiz comes along. I think had The Wiz been a success, this period might have been extended for a while longer, but it was probably just waiting for that other shoe to drop. But The Wiz sort of gave everybody, I think, a convenient out away saying, well, if The Wiz isn't a success, let's because, just not deal with it anymore. The Wiz cost as way more, multiples more, right? So The Wiz was a bigger bet. Can we spend, was it what, how, how much was it? I mean, the, the stories are between 25 and $40 million. Yeah, but $25 million, that's a... That's yeah. a big budget movie. Let's keep in mind, Star Wars costs $7 million to make. Wow. Okay, so can we spend you know, $25 million on a black film? Is there enough? And the experience of The Wiz led the studios to go, no. So then they're saying, there's not big business in these sort of films. We can No, make- no. What they say is there's not business, period. They say, forget big business. Say, well, this cycle has, has petered out. Because the point I've, I've, I've made so often uh, is that black film is considered a genre. If you make a black Western, you're not making a black Western. You're making a black film. Right. If you're making a black romantic comedy, you're making a, a romantic yeah. comedy. You're making a black film. Yeah. So when these films fail, they tend to bring down for the people who are the bean counters, the, those are decision makers. They tend to bring down all the black film. If one doesn't succeed, and I know you and I have talked about this, these cycles, you know, you had in the early 90s, uh, those black filmmakers, you know, when the Hudson, Hudson Brothers just started to explode and Single the other James Bond and Spike Maddie Lee Rich. and Maddie Rich, they all got the cover of the New York Times, the new black aesthetic. This is a whole new wave of black film. Well, that wave kind of goes away of all cycles and then black film goes away. And then in the late 90s, early 2000s, you had all those black romantic comedies, you know, The Best Man and The Wood and all those kinds of things, and Brown Sugar. And then once those movies, you know, cycle through, then black film disappears again. And so uh, what, I was, what I'm saying with this is that when The Wiz failed, just a way of saying, we're just not doing this anymore. And there were a couple of movies that came after that, but to no real success. It took the late 80s, uh, 86 with Spike Lee, She's Gotta Have It. 87 with Robert Townsend and Hollywood Shuffle. Going back to the example of Melvin Van Peebles and Oscar Michaud, where these guys went out, raised the money, made the movies, promoted the movies by using the way the movies were made as part of the sales, because otherwise I think they would have just been dismissed as black films. So but you know, this, Spike Lee talked. This ahead. is an important part of why Spike Lee. Robert Townsend and a couple others were able to break through because they were able to be entrepreneurial about it and to be able to be their own producers. So that separates them from people. I mean, so when we say the studios stopped supporting the notion of black films, 
And then you had to be, you know, able to make it cheap and get your friends to pony up some money. And if you could do those things, then you could make a picture. Very, very hard to do. But that not just show up at a studio and get and get a budget. Well, but that, I think that's kind of almost always been the lifeblood of, of black film, the independent band. You know, going back to Oscar Michel, going back to Spencer Williams, going back to, to Melvin Van Peebles. If you were going to get a black movie made the way you wanted to make it, you went out, you raised the money, you went out, you starred in the movie, you went out. And then after you did all those things, you sold the movie and you booked it in the theaters. That's what Oscar Michel did. That's what Melvin Van Peebles did. He personally went and booked that movie in the theaters, had the soundtrack for sale in the, in the lobby because he understood that that's, that was part of the discipline. You weren't allowed to do what you did in studio films, which is to say the director did this and the writer did this and the producer did this. You had to do all those things. I mean, the equivalent of the Negro Leagues and, in constant motion. And quite often the, 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 the famous white director seems to maintain a sort of almost godlike presence. I, I sit in the back. I don't really talk that much. Maybe I'll descend from the mountain to talk a little bit to a marquee institution, maybe. And then I'm gone, right? But like Spike Lee made himself into a pop cultural figure because he had to, to be able to sell those films and get more chances. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's not just that he's Spike Lee. He's also Mars Blackman starring in Nike commercials. Right. And it's, it, it, it's the shoes, money. It's the shoes. And, 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 but again, that goes back to that entrepreneurial spirit that was demanded of black filmmakers from the outset. And not, but in those days, you were playing the black theater circuit, which is to say, you were playing in buildings that weren't built to be movie theaters. There's a section we had in the movie that we ended up losing just for time. We're talking about my grandmother again, who didn't see many movies, and she went to one movie, and the, I'm sure it was like in a, a grain, a formal grain warehouse had been converted into a movie theater or something, and they stopped the projection because there's a bat in the movie theater, and she just said, "I can be chased by bats at my house. I don't need to go to." A, movie theater and do this and gave up on them. But there's also a section where Dr. King is in the movie saying, well, you know, if you were colored, you went to see the movies in the color theaters and they were often second and third run. And my editor found that, but just, you see that you go, Oh my God, even Martin Luther King is talking about, you know, the kind of sigh of resignation you had to offer up as a black person. If you're going to see a movies, you were going to see in the South, especially you were going to a third run house that mm-hmm. didn't have air conditioning mm-hmm. that probably had a bunch of, you know, fold out chairs as much mm-hmm. as anything else. So it wasn't raked for the proper experience. It wasn't built to be a movie theater. It's a big room where they show movies where you're seeing a movie that white people have seen a year earlier. The, the print was probably in really bad shape. What does that do to you wanting to see movies even? And, and the thing that we know too, certainly you and I, is that black people spend disproportionate in ratio to our part of the population on entertainment so that movies that the studios who owned the movie theaters weren't playing to that audience, that they would rather go and try to get movies booked in Germany and be kicked out of Germany because of the Nazis. I mean, that's, that seems insane to me. And that this is all too uh, from a business that presents itself more often as not as liberal and still wouldn't do this. What does eating healthy mean to you? 
Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash thrivemarket.com slash On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I think that now, because we talk about the the cycles of opportunity and then they didn't care about us. And then I think that now is a sort of golden age for visual culture. I think there are more people who are able to make uh, films that we would say are authentic than perhaps ever before. And then before behind the camera, mo- most importantly, but also in front of the camera. Um, and you see this in the television landscape and also in the uh, silver, uh, the big screen. Um, and I could, you know, we could rattle off 10 working directors right now who we both think are really interesting. And um, I, I don't think that this has happened. And people I talk to who are inside the industry say, this is not a trend. This is the way things are at this point. What do you think? See, now you're already making a face. It is, it is be- an era, I- is it not? Is it golden age? Is it not? Well, listen, I think we've had a number of golden ages. I want to believe that things are going to be better and things certainly, okay, here's the thing that, has really changed stuff. The fact that there is no longer this big uh, impediment to access to equipment, that you can make a movie, a pro movie, pretty cheap now. You don't need to have a big crew or to shoot film or any of those things. Um, but, you know, I mean, you know, think back to that story about Misha Green, who did Lovecraft Country, and how she seemed to be stigmatized for offering the same kind of, wanting the same kind of control that white creators get all the time. I mean, you can't say that there weren't other people who did shows at HBO who probably weren't. If she was said to be somebody who didn't handle things well, there are other stories I've heard about other people at HBO. I won't go into here because my lawyer is shaking his head saying, don't do it. But there, are, <laughs> but there's certainly other stories about people who misbehaved on sets who got to do as much as they wanted to do. So I think there's still a kind of a higher standard to which we are held. My fear is that as long as there aren't people of color who really can make the big decisions. And, and, you know, during the pandemic, when, especially after George Floyd, I would start to get these phone calls. Well, you know, we're going to put together this blue ribbon panel and um, 
we want to sit down and talk to you and other people like you so we can try to figure out what to do. And I would just say, I don't have time for this. It's a panel on Zoom, so I'm not even going to get pastry out of it. So <laughs> here, let me, here's the short answer. Hire some black people. It's as simple as that. Hire a few in decision-making position. Then we don't have to have this conversation anymore. This isn't a conversation that needs to be had. This is not, you're not trying to compete with Jeff Bezos and, and making a rocket for free to get people to Mars. This is just simply trusting people of color to make decisions. It's as simple as that. But we, but is the, is this not a, uh, I mean, a, a special moment? I'm trying to look up a list of like, who's working now, who is, but I mean, like, there's a well, lot. Let's go back 30 years to that period where there are lots of people working too. And that felt like the beginning of each one of these times I'm moved enough to think that there's enough talent. I go back to the reason I said in the film 1972 was some like an incredible year to me. Between Isaac Hayes going on stage wearing chains, not as a slave, but as the leader of this band in Shaft, winning the Oscar. It's the same year as Superfly, which I think is one of the greatest pieces of movie music of all time, not just the 70s. Sure. So good, in fact, that people who own the, the, the music who've never seen the movie think they've seen the movie. Sure. That's how evocative it is of the film itself. How often yeah. does that happen? Then that's also the same year as Lady Sings the Blues. It's the same year as Sounder. There's so much going on that you think this has got to be a year that will change everybody's perceptions. But my fear is that there are people looking for a, a couple of failures and then they go back to thinking, well, you know, we tried. I mean, if we you tried in a world where Black Panther does what a billion. Right. And then, they, you know, they put out Black Panther 2. And I think it's already at half a million or something like that in like a week. Half a billion, sure, yeah. But you know, billion. I mean, like, does it not like there? There's there. People are going to see these pictures. Like, we got to keep. We can keep serving these audiences. Okay, so there's Black Panther four years ago, and there's Black Panther two. How many movies? Okay, we we just say that the movie business entirely is imitative. Whenever there's a huge success, they jump on that boat. And they make a whole bunch of them. How many movies like Black Panther have we seen since Black Panther? Well, that, that Black Panther, Woman King, yeah, Black Woman Panther King. 2. That yeah. would be it in the yeah. course of four years. Yeah. So, so, okay. So the lack of trust that we can, or concern for these audiences, they haven't even bothered to try to make their own sort of Black Panther. Again, I will ask you how many of you seen? I've only seen the one and, right. until this one. And right. I talked to all kinds of people who were so excited. Oh, Black Panther's going to change the movie business. I don't think so. I hope I'm wrong. I it, want it, to be wrong about yeah, this. I didn't. really do. It didn't. It, it, it definitely didn't. No. No. I mean, how many have there been? You know, there's been... These there people was, are craving for money. Why hasn't Black Panther changed the way that other gigantic films have? Gosh, Trey, you know, look at that period we're talking about in this documentary. You've got one hit after another. Yeah. Uh, they're all doing business. Why doesn't that change things? You know, if, if they should take anything away, so the lesson that Michael Lewis offers us in Moneyball, which is that you can go to the World Series if you hit singles and doubles. Yeah. Um, but there becomes this 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 enormous lack of confidence in a black big budget tentpole. So if, if the tentpoles are all they're making and uh, imitations of other IP, then that becomes something that sort of excludes people of color. If those are the ground rules of it, even if, and you know, I've seen some, so much of the stuff I've written 
as, as a critic or as a cultural commentator has been in response to these pieces where every few years somebody goes, I don't care if they're green or orange or blue. If people come out to see these movies, I'll make them with anybody. But that's not true. And again, this whole idea that the movie industry, the entertainment industry, is filled with people who are liberal thinkers. If they're not surrounded by other people who, who look different from them, then what are they going to do? If every black film is treated as, again, as part of this genre rather than being a singular kind of film, then when a black film fails, when a, when a black western fails, that does damage to black films. When a black film fails, it makes people think, well, you know, we tried to make these. Again, I'm hoping I'm wrong. I want to be wrong about this. But I've seen it happen basically once a decade since the seventies. No, you're, no, you're, you're you're right. You're right. It's been one. It has been. <laughs> it has been once a decade. I mean, it, one of the things you talk about in the film that I really appreciate is the representation of black women in specific in through film. And yes, we get the beautiful, delicate, gorgeous, you know, woman in film, but we also get really strong women that really leapt out at me when you talked about the black exploitation female stars who are doing their own stunts and thus portraying a sort of strength that um that we know and that we love i mean that's part of it too but you know it's you're talking about that are things going to be different uh is this a golden age the only woman in the history of the Academy Awards, black woman, to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay is Suzanne DePass. That movie came out 50 years ago. And people were saying to me, are you afraid this is going to be dated? And I went, no. I mean, there's only been one other woman nominated for adapted screenplay. In fact, I remember seeing a piece in this DREs for, for Mudbound. And I remember seeing a piece in Entertainment Weekly that said, well, this is the only black woman never be nominated. Well, that's not true. And they couldn't even get that right in the magazine where they presumably had to do fact checking. So I definitely want to try to pay tribute to the contribution of women of color and the way they changed the way women were portrayed. I mean, there's no Charlie's Angels without Pam Greer. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. So, so you keep coming back to the modern era and you locate the fear of the walking dead launched the seventies era and I think you said that it was She's Gotta Have It that helped launch that spike. You mean Night of Living Dead. You said Fear of the Walking Dead, but... Excuse me. <coughs> you said Night of Living Dead, 68, I believe. You said it was where he launched... Yeah, 1968. And She's Gotta Have It helped open the door for what would become Singleton, Hudlin Brothers, Maddie Rich, Leslie, that group. Um, so... This, if we agree that there is something going on now, there is a large number of people working, and there's who, what film do you think launches the modern period? I mean, in so many ways, I want to think that it's Love and Basketball. That's a film that shows a woman can direct action, you know, uh, and, and she does directing sports sequences is hard anyway. Those sequences with the basketball playing are clear. We know who's advancing the ball. There's tension, there's drama and all that. And it takes her really almost 20 years to get to a directed action film. Um, so that's, that's the cause and effect of it. Some people said to me that, that it's, 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 I think we're marking a tighter timeline because that that's a 2000 film. So now you're talking about a two-decade era right i think as a historian you'd be like that's a little bit long for an era right some people not me have said that 
it perhaps is somewhere in the realm of Django and 12 Years a Slave that made the studios uh, and the creators say, now is our time and and help launch the modern era. Well, but I mean, I think in the case of Django and Chain, that's a Quentin Tarantino movie. That's, yeah. that's separate from all of this. Nobody's calling that a black film. They're calling that a Quentin Tarantino film. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way they're not saying that... Um, Inglorious Bastards is a World War II movie. They're saying it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. So that separates it from that. And and you know, and we would certainly hope with the case of Twelve Years a Slave, which is which had been done in the eighties as a TV show with Solomon Northup's Journey for public television. Um, listen, we we the hope is that that ignites something new. But sometimes I mean, movies like that, I thought was being a, a one off. You know, Steve McQueen is a British black visual artist who made a movie. So he, any way that can be used to sort of like make these films seem sweet, generous rather than part of a wave happens so that they're not given the weight of being part of a wave of new black films rather than this one off case. Hmm. So, okay. Do you still think love and basketball? That's 20 years ago. Isn't there something that is more in the current wave of black? Oh God, that's easy. It's, 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 it's get out, which is so mm. potent that we get a white imitation of Get Out This Year with Don't Worry Darling. So that's the beginning of the new wave of black film. It also does something that we hadn't seen before, the idea of making a black horror film, which hadn't existed really before that. Right, right. He's, he's brilliant. I love him. He's one of my favorites. It, is it really? It's not really horror. He, like, plays with horror. That, if you're I, think he horror, calls, I think he thinks of himself horror. as a horror filmmaker. I mean, certainly there's more to it because... It's bringing in black paranoia, which hadn't yes. existed in horror films before. Yes. And so, no, it's, I'm, not, I'm not trying to demean, and I think Jordan will call it, say it's a horror film. Because when I try to say it's a horror comedy, because it's, it's playing with the idea of that kind of tension, I, I think he thought that was being reductive about it. And I understand. And, and, and so as often as not, horror films are being used to be metaphorical about what's yeah. going on in society. So you can do that in horror too. And, and I think you would have no issue with that. I think they're certainly bigger than horror films, but that's where they start. Yeah, he would I mean, tell you that. If he, he'll use, you know, like the music of a horror film or the expectation of like, I don't know what's around the corner. I'm really scared. And then like, nothing will pop out. If this is, this is a whole, like, I don't really fuck with horror films and I love Jordan Peele. And I'm like, I yeah, but let me ask you this though: when, when, when is Daniel at that? When Daniel's at that party and he's the only black person there who's not serving anybody, that does something to you, and that's playing with the that's even playing with the idea of seeing a black person in that situation in movies because we don't see it very often where they're the center of it, and so that that's in some ways almost Hitchcockian because rather than it being Tippi Hedren, it's Daniel Kaluuya in this place that doesn't quite that doesn't make sense for him, so, and 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 it's certainly. I see it in this way. It, it connects to the same kind of paranoia you feel in watching Dwayne Jones and Night of the Living Dead. So this is your first uh, picture that you've directed, right? Well, unless you have something to tell me. Yes. Yes, it is. It's the first one. I, I made a picture with a woman. I don't even I didn't even know. It came yeah, out. it never got out. It's only in my head. But I think it's the greatest film of the 21st century. If only other people could see it. This is the first movie I directed. And it's 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 it took 23 years to get made. And it, it came out of so many things. I did the Atlanta Locke lectures at Harvard 20 years ago, literally 20 years ago this year, this month, in fact. 
that dealt with a lot of these themes. And But before that, I had had a conversation with the Hughes brothers the first time I went to Sundance in 99. And um, they were there with American Pimp, which I think turned out to be a horror film for audiences because they thought it was going to be like Pimp My Ride. And it was, no, this is about pimps. But anyway, we were talking and I had mentioned Dead Presidents. And I just said, I, I love that you use what always felt to me like a piece of movie music, Walk On Bye Bye Isaac Hayes, because, and Albert Hughes says that Newson with me, it's stolen from Once Upon a Time in the West. And that's one of the things that really sparked this because it made me realize I'm not the only person who thinks like this. Other people have these same kinds of thoughts and associations. And that was as much a catalyst for me as anything, that conversation with Albert Hughes. So how did directing a movie, because you've been writing about the movies for, what, 50 years? How did 50 years? How old do you think I am? Gee whiz, 50 years. Yeah, I've been writing about movies, I guess, since the silent era. And I thought black and white meant there were black and white people in them, but just meant white people with no color. So I didn't that know was yes, I mean, you know, me and Georges Melier started this together. And then when the Warner Bros. added sound, but it was that minstrel thing, it made me not think about movies for another okay, 30 right, years. Okay, okay, okay. okay. You've been with movies <laughs> yes, a long time. 50, we won't be specific. You've definitely junior high school, I was writing about movies. That's right. As a professional. Because there's so many black critics around, you know, I figure I could join up with them. Yes. 50, no, 50 years of, of writing about movies, Terry. Oh, wow. This is speaking the, to my good ear, why don't you? Because this is going to be the thing that he's just going to just corner me about for, for, the, for the rest of our lives. <laughs> for the next 50 years of our lives. 50 moment. years of our lives. What, what did you learn about making movies? That you that might shape how you view other the movies that you go back to viewing as a consumer. That's a great question. I think what it makes me appreciate is how when they work, they really work. Because you, I just learned stuff about. So, oh, there's like I remember one thing uh, talking to. I was in a room with a brilliant editing room and. I'd like to never have my producers there with me, Steven Soderbergh, who got this thing going, and David Fincher. And there was a cut from Lawrence Fishburne's face in Cornbread Earl and Me to him sitting in this theater where he was being interviewed. And uh, we ended up as, as a diptych. And I was saying, well, this is like two on the nose. And they both went, why would you cut that? That's a movie moment. And I went, oh, you do that on purpose. Oh, so you can build a movie moment if you, oh, oh. And it was, being opened up to the to possibilities of what movies could do. You think, you know, in the abstract, because I'd like to think I pay a lot of attention to things like edits and the way sound is used, but <laughs> to actually do those things, to employ the tools of, of filmmaking, because it was the most exciting thing in the world. So I thought you can really do a lot of the things that you want to do. You can. And, and the thing, the one thing I learned about all this is that, you got the right group of people around you working with you. And I had this great production team, Make Make, uh, Angus Wall, who uh, Angus is one of David Fincher's oldest friends. And in fact, Angus won the Oscar for editing um, The Social Network. What I learned was a, a, pro, a great production company wants to make a good movie with you. And they will do everything in their power to make sure you're making a good movie. They're not, nobody's out to subvert or sabotage. You certainly have uh, differences of opinion about what you want in the movie and that kind of thing. But the fact is, they're out to make the best thing they can make. And that was the most instructive thing to me. 
because as a writer, you're used to doing things by yourself and you wonder about when somebody's going to edit a piece you submit, it's going to be the same piece and it's going to have your voice in it. And because mm-hmm. you don't have those kinds of controls when you're making a film, but you can explain what you want to do. And everybody's there to help make sure that my voice is the voice that's expressive. Nobody was trying to take credit for something they didn't do. I'm happy to give credit. Like I said, my editor found that great footage of Dr. King and we had great sound team. Everybody brought something to this that I couldn't have imagined. That's the, the, the thing that's changed the way I, I feel about movies is how much of a group effort they are. It's one of these things that you know in the abstract, but until you experience it, oh, oh, so we're all working together to make this the best thing it can be. Mm. Shoot, that's mm. amazing. Mm. And the other thing I learned is that you think about it all the time. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but you're, it doesn't matter if I'm out taking a walk at one o'clock in the morning, just as we clear my head, I'll see something or I got my headset on, I'll hear something go, Maybe we can get that piece of music in the movie. How will that work? Well, I should run back and write this down. Uh, no, I'll, do I have paper on me? But it's it's that thing, and you've learned this from doing this. It will take everything you know. It's one of the things that surprised you by doing this until you started doing this, like doing the show, this, this kind of show, this, this podcast. You think, oh, that thing I forgot I knew when somebody says something, I can start talking about that. And that's kind of the fun of it, the, the demands that it places on you, because you know, I know you, you have a low threshold for boredom. And, and, and I think we share that. <laughs> and when, and what, what practicing, taking on this new craft in my dotage, <clears throat> since I've been writing about movies for 50 years now, um, <laughs> is that at the point of my career, I should be standing in front of a Walmart, you know, in a red vest, or a blue vest, whatever vest they wear in front of Walmart. I'm now doing this. I think they're blue. <laughs> okay. See, Thank, and that's why I have you to clear this stuff up for me. But um, that's that's what I got from all this. That's how it's changed the way I look at movies. It made me want to go back and see stuff I really loved and go, wow, so I wonder what on that day. And and if you're smart about this at all, that's why I said what I said early on about directors getting out of the way, you learn how to do that. You learn that when people are there who have something to offer, you listen to it because you can't do everything. I mean, it's interesting. We I, we come. We had an era of the big egotistical director who knows everything. I think now people are a little more humble and they're a little more. They understand it's more a collaborative thing with these actors and the cinematographers. All like it's it's not. You know, they're not like the big master genius. I mean, obviously you have Quarant, you know Tarantino, who's who's that. But most of the people who work a lot are collaborators i think even quentin would say he's a collaborator you know he hires robert richardson because this is the best cinematographer one of the best cinematographers in the world he brings in brad pitt and 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 leonardo dicaprio because he wants to find the people who can bring his vision to life and then he's not trying to own everything certainly even somebody like james cameron comes to realize that you need other people maybe james cameron can do everything better than everybody else but he can't do it all at the same time I think, I mean, I've known a lot of directors and almost every one of them who's any good will tell you that they're collaborators, that if you're not listening to what other people can bring to it, you fall for that whole French idea of the old tour, that the director is this master figure who can do everything and who knows everything and who has to be on top of everything. You know, what you, in so many cases what you're trying to do is, is capture magic. You've got to be open to what people have to offer. You know, if you're a good director, you have to know how to talk to actors and there are a lot of actors who would tell you 
that directors don't know how to talk to actors and don't understand how vulnerable they're making themselves. And so the director who gets that, but going back to the case of, um, of Get Out, I remember telling Jordan what I loved about that movie is that single take that starts the film with Lakeith in the car. He said, yeah, well, it wasn't like that at first, and it didn't work the way we cut together. So we had a day, and I just decided, talking to people, let's try and do this as, as a single take and see what happens. And that makes the movie work, because there's something subconscious. You're waiting for a cut that doesn't happen, and you're waiting for all these things. All these things that we understand, that filmmakers understand you can do with the medium. When you're watching a long take, there's a part of you that's wondering, how long is this going to go? What's going to happen here? Because there's that thing that John Houston used to say, that an edit comes when somebody naturally blinks. That's where you can make the cut. And mm. you can sort of like weigh cuts based on that. And the longer you go, the more you build up this kind of tension as to how long is this going to go before the camera in effect blinks. Mm. And that long take, and then and subtextually certainly, get out is about paranoia. And and the longer you have to wait for something to happen, the more your paranoia is ratcheted up. Mm. So that's a director listening to the movie and collaborating with the process. Again, I think any great director you talk to, including Quentin Tarantino, will tell you they don't make movies by themselves. The, what the, your description of movie making reminded me why I loved Nope so much. Because I think it was ultimately about making a movie. They, they made a movie. They were the most crazy ragtag movie team but they made a movie with a tempestuous uh, star who hangs out in the cloud in his trailer all day. And like, can we find a way to like get him to come out and do his thing? Um, but, you know, there's a cinematographer, there's a director, there's a, I don't know what I would call her. Was she the producer, I guess? She's like, you know, handling all the other business. Um, I, I, when I realized, oh my God, they're making a movie, right? First camera, second camera, I'm like, this is brilliant. Absolutely. And and it's, it's Jordan being open to what movie making has to offer. And you can see this is evolution and confidence as a filmmaker. And the, and, and, but Get Out is an incredibly confident film. And you, you bring on the best people because you understand, again, it's a collaborative medium. And, and, and. That's what I've, I've learned from this. And, and then just, again, watching movies now in this way, having done this and gone from the beginning to end with it, and even having like a year off because we were supposed to start shooting in May of 2020. And then, I don't know if you've got news of this back east, we had this thing here, the pandemic, but it shut stuff down. So what it forced me to do Perfect. was, I actually, yeah, I, I guess it probably made the internet. It forced me to write for a year and think about what I wanted this to be. And, and so... Um, I mean, I can't, I mean, I, it turned out to be something that was a, a benefit in a way that was surprising to me, but gave me a lot of time to think before we finally started going out to shoot the movie. <clears throat> so one last thing, I've had this argument with a bunch of people, uh, the end of the join the bunch. What's the argument? The, the end of Nope. Does Daniel Kaluuya's I'm character. I'm not doing this. Nope. I'm not doing not? this. Nope, not my you movie. said I, we want to join the argument. You already said you join the argument. I'm arguing. I'm arguing about joining, not joining the argument. That's an argument too. What do you think? The <laughs> not argument? an argument. I want to, no, no. I want to hear your take on this. Uh, that's what's important. People listening to the show to hear you. So, what do you think of this? No, no. They want to hear you. The point is you. Um, I completely believed that he survived, 
And the main clue to me that he survived was what Jordan Peele, Jordan Peele is always making movies about family in one way or another. And the end of the other movies, family reunites his brother, little Rel comes at the end of get out to save him. Um, you know, at the end of, uh, what was the loopy us, right? The family is driving down the highway. So brother and sister have come back together. We defeated the alien and now we are one, uh, once again, um, Otherwise, it breaks the 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 pattern that Jordan has always had for his very. But keep in mind, the original ending of Us was not that that doesn't happen. I know. We all just come back. I know. So I mean, that's, I, I want to see how that. I know the original ending of Us was that he gets arrested and goes to prison. I wish that he had stuck with that ending because it is much more real to our experience. No, no, I, I think he had, his point was that you know black people suffered enough. Let's not make them suffer in this movie, too. And I get that. And that's that's actually that ties into what I was trying to do with my thing, which is that this why this moment was so impactful. in 1968 to 1978 is that it offered heroes and it goes to show that the hero myth upon which most of the American cinema is built is an enduring and vital myth. And it doesn't matter who's offering it up in front of the camera. People will come out to see it. That's the lesson you think that the movie sh- should have taken away from that period. And they did not. They just put white people back in front of the camera again as heroes. That's it. Thanks for listening. Torrey Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. And maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. Mm-hmm.